0: Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 18. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham, and this is the podcast to inform, debate, and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be.
1: Get ready.
0: Hello, 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 and welcome back to Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. It's nice to have you here again with me. Uh, I hope you're well, I certainly am. Busier than ever, new job taking up a lot of my time, it's going very very well. My focus at the moment is on history taking, Uh, I've got my medical supervisor, one of the consultants in the A&E and we had a chat and history taking and differential diagnosis is my focus at the moment. So I'm following lots of people around, taking the odd history learning how to structure my conversations with patients and how to focus down on the conditions that they're presenting me with. My main focus, apart from history taking, is paediatrics and minors. I've got lots of experience in resus, so I'm not going anywhere near there. So that's a little bit about myself. What's this episode gonna feature today? Well, it's mainly gonna feature a gentleman called Ollie Poole. Now, Ollie is uh, in Canada. He's a respiratory therapist. He was originally born in the UK, and he's going to tell you all this kind of stuff, so I won't go into too much detail. But he's a respiratory therapist in Canada, and one of the reasons I got hold of him was through his YouTube channel, which I'll link to in the show notes, which is um, called Respiratory Review. He's done a very good series on mechanical ventilation. He's also done a series on arterial blood gas sampling, both of which I would highly recommend. He does it in the Khan Academy style, so the uh, chalk and talk, Uh, but I love his style. He explains things very clearly and and reasonably slowly, so thick brains like mine can take it in. So he covers the whole series of mechanical ventilation. So this initial conversation was just talking about um, some of the basic issues with mechanical ventilation. Um and the plan is that we're going to expand on that a little further. So this is just the initial chat. It may not be for everyone who normally listens to my podcasts. There may be people out there who know mechanical ventilation very well, but I think I've got a very mixed audience, so some of you might find it very valuable. Let me know if you do, or if, even if you don't. You can go to the website, criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. There's a voicemail facility there. Leave me a message, let me know one way or another. If you don't find it useful, then let me know. If you do, also let me know. So without further ado, let's crack on and meet Ollie.
1: I grew up in the UK, hence the the, the accent, um, and lived in the UK, went to school in the UK until I was uh, 18, moved over to Canada. My My dad was living in Canada at the time and we had dual citizenship, so I moved over there. And then sort of embarked on this kind of long process to to eventually end up doing something in something in critical care, whether it was a physician or or whatever. Um so started off doing the respiratory therapy program. And so respiratory therapists i I d don't exist in the UK, and at least in the form that they do in Canada. That there's there's certainly respiratory care practitioners. Um so yeah, so that's a three-year program for the most part. So I did th- the three years of that, and we focused mostly on everything from sort of basic anatomy of the whole body, and then more focused anatomy on cardiopulmonary, and we learn lung mechanics, pathophysiology, disease, all that kind of stuff, and then really tailor all that into, okay, well, how do we apply that to mechanical ventilation? So that's really the sort of main scope of the RT role is to manage um, mechanically ventilated patients. So we do um, obviously critical care management and then uh, down in the emergency room, we'll do some ventilator management as well. With that, we do uh, some airway management as well and part of sort of code teams and trauma teams um and then all sort of oxygen and oxygen therapeutics in the hospital. So it's quite a broad scope. And even from there, you can divert off into sort of home care or hyperbaric medicine. So it's, it's quite a sort of there's quite a few pathways you can go down. So I finished that training just over almost 18 months ago. And I've been working since then uh, here in Halifax, Nova Scotia in Canada. And um, yeah, so I, I, I work at the at the adult tertiary care center here in, in Canada.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? That it's not a model that we use over here. We don't, you know, respiratory, I think respiratory therapists you get in the States as well, don't yeah. you? But it's not something we use here in the UK. Yeah. Um, and I think the closest we would get to it is probably the physiotherapist, isn't it? And the physiotherapists are very general over here. They may shoot me down in flames for saying that. I know they do have their specialist right. areas, but nobody specifically focuses on the respiratory side of it. Yeah. Do you look after the, the, um, NIV patients as well? Oh, yeah. Presumably? yeah.
1: So, um, Really, any kind of anybody in sort of any kind of respiratory failure is going to be managed in, in, in to some capacity by a respiratory therapist. So whether that's somebody, and it's nice because you have a bit of a transition. Certainly, in our institution, let's say, you have somebody up on the floors who is being sort of chronically managed for whatever they came into hospital with. So we may be setting them up on oxygen there, providing them with humidity, con- uh, counselling about different inhalers, mm-hmm. and teaching them puffer technique to doing spirometry testing on them up on the floors and then they start to deteriorate perhaps and and then uh, it would probably be a different respiratory therapist but the respiratory therapy team would then okay follow them through okay then maybe they need to be non-invasively ventilated so we would set that mm. up and and manage and sort of make adjustments to that we will do the arterial blood gas draws and then analyze that and then use that to direct our clinical decisions from ventilation side of things and And then if we need to escalate to the point where we're invasively ventilating, then we have the the scope to so put in breathing tubes and then put people on mechanical ventilators and manage them from there. So
0: do you, do you actually then, do you actually intubate them yourselves or do uh, you have someone it else do that? That's where pool? you are
1: in, in a tertiary care center like ours. We have a lot of what we call residents. I'm not sure what the equivalent is in, in the UK. I think it's housemen or just sort of medical trainees. Um, so there's a lot. There's usually a lot of people around looking to get experience with these type of things. So, um, we, we do have it in our scope to, to intubate patients and certainly at codes and, Sort of more acute situations, we would be doing that kind of thing. But when you've got a lot of learners around, that typically gets spread around to them. But yeah, it's, in us.
0: okay. But, but if needed, you could do oh, a yeah. rapid sequence induction. Oh, yeah, could absolutely.
1: You? Um, okay. it, well, it's from the airway perspective anyway. We wouldn't be, we don't push drugs. We don't order that kind of stuff, but from the performing of airway management, we're, we're certainly involved there. Yeah.
0: So you can't, you, you, you would need, um, somebody who is able to give the drugs. Right. Absolutely.
1: At, at the, at, at the head we would well. need somebody not only to order medications like we don't have a we don't have any sort of prescribing roles we can't order any medications and and we'd also need somebody trained to push those medications so like we wouldn't we wouldn't push any uh general anesthetic agents or uh ketamine profile that kind of stuff that would be done by the IC, the icu i'm gonna have to get this right itu for you guys right yeah so up uh,
0: we're, we're flexible. Okay, we good. can do that. I
1: apologize if it, yeah. That's so, fine. Um, so yes, yeah, so that would be by one of the intensive care nurses or somebody trained in, in that respect. So it, it's, it's quite a sort of defined role around airway management in that it's simply performing of airway management. The, we obviously have to understand all the different drugs and stuff, but we, we wouldn't be ordering them or pushing them ourselves though. No. Okay, yeah. cool. So what, what inspired you to make these YouTube videos? I think there's twofold. The first was that when I was going through the, the program, I, I benefited a lot from the style of the Khan Academy videos and kind of wished there was something for RT training in the similar style. So that's probably answer number one. The second is that. I think it's in the hospital, especially in critical care, it seems like we compartmentalize everything and everyone sort of has their, their zone and their scope. And so Ollie's the RT, so he does ventilation and this is, this is the physio and they do this. And it seems like we, we become almost quite tribal in the way we deliver healthcare. Um, And as a result of that, like, uh, because people don't get hands-on experience with it and they don't. It's just left to the RTs to figure out ventilation. I find that a lot of times there's people don't have the understanding that maybe they'd like to or, or should have as part of a critical care team. So I think that raising the sort of general knowledge of ventilation from everybody, regardless of whether or not you're physically be pressing the buttons and making changes, just creates a more educated team and allows for more sort of vibrant discussion and sort of interaction between everybody. Um, so, yeah, I think the idea of having one one group who hold all the knowledge and that isn't shared amongst everybody else is is a detrimental idea to sort of team based medicine. So I wanted to be able to sort of spread some of that knowledge so that a medical student or a nursing student who wants to understand why we ventilate in a certain way can because it's not we don't own this information. You know, what I mean, um, Right,
0: okay. So these videos now, um, presumably uh, you promote those at work and you refer people to them, or do people know about them and they're going there of their own accord now?
1: I th- Initially, initially, I sort of just put them up there. The, the traffic I was getting through YouTube was almost just people stumbling upon them. And then I started to, as that started to pick up a bit and... I started to get a couple of comments and people saying that they were finding them useful. That's when I was like, oh, okay, this might actually be something useful for people. And then I started to promote it a a little bit more. And certainly since you and I met and certainly since I started to set Twitter up and that kind of thing, I've been sort of promoting a little bit more. But initially, they were just kind of there and I would just refer people to them if they needed them. But. Um, Why don't you talk to me now, yeah. as
0: if I was a new staff nurse working in ITU, and you stood me in front of the ventilator for the first time, and I want to know the basics that are going to get me
1: through the shift today. One of the most important things to to begin by understanding is uh, what is the relationship between the ventilator and the patient, and we and we we chat a little bit about this in some of the videos and. Because th- there can be an assumption that when someone's on a breathing machine, this is life support and this is critical care, and oh, they must be just in a induced coma and they're not. But it's actually becoming more and more the opposite nowadays. So I think the most important thing is is being able to assess. Okay, well, how much is the patient able to interact with the ventilator, and how much are they going to? So knowing that really leads you into okay, what mode am I in? So if the patient's paralyzed and sedated, then they're not going to be on a spontaneous mode, they're going to need to be on something which controls uh, controls ventilation in some sense, right? So that's where we get into sort of the assist control modes, which is, seems to be where most things are heading nowadays. We, we used to use SIMV a lot in the past, and some centers still do, but that's really been moving now towards um assist control ventilation. So, Assist control means you, there's two breath types. There is an assisted breath and a controlled breath, hence the name assist control. So controlled breaths are the sort of mandatory breaths that the ventilator is going to give the patient. So, and that's going to be determined primarily by the respiratory rate. So let's say we set, we have our ventilator and we have our patient. They're paralyzed, sedated, and we set a respiratory rate of 10 breaths a minute.
0: Right, so we're in control. That patient control.
1: is as, is as flat as they're going to yeah, be. That that okay. patient, we can guarantee by the simply by the fact that we've paralysed them, that this patient is not going to be initiating anything, for any breaths. It's not, they're not going to be attempting to breathe, assuming they're appropriately paralysed. So it's now our responsibility entirely to breathe for this patient. So we we have to do all the work. Well, when I say we, the ventilator has to do all the work. Um, so we set our respiratory rate of. Whatever it can be 10, 12, 14, wherever we want to start. And, um, what's that determined by? Well, depending on what mode you're in, depending whether or not we're going to be targeting volume or whether we're going to be targeting pressure, we, we, we want to set a, uh, a minute ventilation that's going to maintain their arterial blood gas. It's going to keep them in a sort of homeostasis with respect to their, respect to their CO2 and with respect to their pH. So a typical starting point. I, I usually start, I, there's a, I, I don't know what the reference is, so I can't really reference this properly, but it's 90 to 120 mils per kilo per minute is a sort of typical starting point for a minute ventilation. So we want to say, how much volume are we going to give this patient in a whole minute? So that usually equates for normal people somewhere around five to 10 liters a minute of minute ventilation is a good place to kind of start and then go from there. Obviously, when you look at people who are critically ill, that might be slightly higher because they have higher metabolic demands or, or whatever. But um, So we set our, our respiratory rate, let's just say, of 10. And that means that every six seconds, so over a 60-second minute, 10 breaths, every six seconds, that's what we call our total cycle time. That's a time for inspiration and expiration before the next breath begins. So every six seconds, the ventilator is going to deliver a breath to the patient. And that's just going to happen like clockwork every six seconds for as long as we want it to happen. Years if you needed to. Wow. Um, so then the next question. So that's, we've set up one thing. We know that we know that this patient's going to get 10 breaths a minute. So that's, that's the sort of assist control part. That's the, how is the ventilator and the patient interacting? So the, those are all controlled breaths because they're mandatory and the patient and they're triggered by time. The reason they happen is just six seconds goes by and then the next one comes in, the next one comes in. So if the patient was now no longer paralyzed and we're starting to wean them a little bit off their sedation, they start to wake up. Maybe that 10 breaths a minute isn't enough and they actually need, they need more ventilation to sort of meet their demands. So maybe they'll start triggering extra breaths. The patient can start to initiate extra breaths. So those extra breaths are going to be. They're going to be triggered by the patient, right? They're not going to be triggered by time. They're going to be extra ones on top of that 10. We might get up to 11, 12, 13, whatever.
0: But the machine will continue to deliver those 10 breaths
1: as well. Yeah. So it's going to be, they're going to be additional to the 10 that we've set with our respiratory rate. The, The crux of sort of assist control is that those extra breaths that the patient Initiates themselves are going to be identical in the way they're delivered in terms of whether or not they're a certain tidal volume or a certain pressure change. They're going to be identical to the the controlled breaths, but they're just triggered by the patient. So there's very there's not much there's not much sort of variation. So how much volume the patient takes or whatever. If you if you if you've set an inappropriately low tidal volume the patient doesn't really have much opportunity to take a bigger tidal volume if they want to because they're just going to get the same breath every time. So that's the first part I usually start with is, okay, we're, we're talking about how is the ventilator and the patient interacting with each other. And then the next part is how is each breath delivered? What are the sort of rules for each breath? So in volume control, we, we select volume as the thing we're going to con- target, we're going to control. So in a lot of the videos, I use the, the example of 500 mils. So we have 500 mils of tidal volume, and that's what we're going to give them, 10 times a minute. So that will give us a, a minute ventilation of 5 liters, right? 500 mils, 10 times a minute. The variable factor in volume control, then, is going to be what pressure is generated in the circuit as a result of me pushing 500 mils in. Right, So the pressure is going to vary, and that's going to vary based on how stiff the patient's lungs are, how compliant they are, whether there's airway resistance on all sorts of things. The size of the breathing tube is going to impact it. But the guaranteed thing is that we're going to get 500 mils every breath. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we choose to target pressure instead, instead of saying, okay, we're going to get 500 mils of breath, we say every breath, so every, every six seconds for a respiratory rate of 10, We're going to elevate the pressure from wherever our baseline pressure is, maybe it's at 5, up to 25, and then back down to 5 again. So that's Mm -hmm. our pressure control breath. We're targeting a pressure change. And as, as a result of that pressure change, we're going to end up with a tidal volume. So that tidal volume is going to vary, again, based on how stiff the lungs are. If the lungs are really stiff, that pressure change might give you a small tidal volume. But if you use the same pressure change on someone with much more compliant lungs, then the tidal volumes can be much bigger. Okay. But in
0: this base, in this still relatively basic mode of ventilation, mm-hmm. that uh, pressure will always be the same for each breath. Yeah. So they will always be get 25 centimeters delivered per breath, right. Regardless of what the patient's trying or not right. trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so that's so that's where we so that's pressure targeting, right? So, um, so those are the sort of main. The main, in terms of fundamentals of ventilation, those are the two main ones. We have volume targeting and pressure targeting. That's how we control their minute ventilation. And then we'll, we'll, we'll draw arterial blood gases and we'll look at, we'll look at their blood gases, um, and interpret what that says. So part of the videos that we do is in, is learning how to interpret those. And let's say it's, we have a respiratory acidosis, then we know we need to, increase the amount of ventilation we're doing to blow down the co2 so then we make changes based on that so we need to maybe increase our respiratory rate so that instead of having 500 mils 10 times a minute maybe we go 500 mils 14 times a minute and we've added a little bit more ventilation so that's really the sort of the crux of it is we just we just put that up and down based on on what we get from from the blood gases what what are we getting from the vitals and the sats and that kind of stuff
0: Okay, great. All right. So let's just talk about some of the specific terms because we've talked about rate. Yeah. We've talked about tidal volume and we touched on minute volume as well. Talk to me about the different pressures that we use. We'll talk about PEEP in a moment. But uh, when we talk about pressure support and pressure control, what do we mean? What's the difference? Because
1: that confuses a lot of people. It does. and And that's a common I wouldn't say mistake but it's a common misunderstanding that people have that they just confuse the two terms. So pressure control is what we do on a mandatory breath. That's that's what we do in assist control mode. So that's where we change the pressure from whatever from 5 which is our peep up to 25. So our pressure change is 20 there. So our peak pressure in the circuit, so the peak pressure is the highest pressure in the circuit during a breath. So Let's say our peak pressure is 25 and our peep is five, which means our change in pressure is 20. Okay. Mm -hmm. So pressure control is something that we set on mandatory breaths, whereas pressure support is something that we give on in a spontaneous mode of ventilation. And it's designed to augment the patient's tidal volume. So these, these people are breathing on their own. They're making their own respiratory efforts. And the pressure support is designed just to firstly, overcome the added resistance of breathing through an endotracheal tube and through a ventilator circuit. That's, uh, even, even a healthy person w- would struggle at times to breathe through a small endotracheal tube. So mm-hmm. some of that pressure support, which is a spontaneous mode, is to overcome that. And then it's just to augment their tidal volume to a, a point where we're happy with it. Mm-hmm. So okay. the big difference is pressure control is in a controlled mode, in a mandatory mode. Whereas pressure support is when the patient's breathing spontaneously.
0: Okay. Can you set the two at different levels? Can you have a pressure control of 20 and a pressure support of 10? Would that be a reasonable thing to do, or would there not be any good reason for doing that?
1: Yeah, well, it depends what mode of ventilation you're in. I mean, the, the, when we when we spoke about when we spoke about assist control ventilation, I said that there is assisted breaths and control breaths, right? So there wouldn't be a pressure support value in assist control ventilation. It would only be a pressure control if we were if we were in assist control pressure control. Let's say if we were ventilating in assist control volume control, there wouldn't even be a pressure control value. It would just be volume control, right? Because we're not targeting pressure. Pressure is going to be variable. You only have the option of applying a pressure support when you are in a mode that allows spontaneous breaths. So spontaneous breaths are breaths that are firstly triggered by the patient, and secondly, that are supported with pressure support. So in assist control, there's no pressure support because there's no truly spontaneous breaths. The patient may trigger a breath, but it's not a spontaneous breath because we then just give them a breath. Do you know what I mean? I think I'm getting
0: a little bit confused because you're calling something by a name I'm not familiar with. Okay. Assist control, would that equate to what I would probably call PSIMV? So we have SIMV, but we use right. pressure-controlled ventilation to control the tidal volume. Right. So uh,
1: SIMV is is it's kind of a mixed mode of ventilation. So you are it's it's this is where term and the biggest just to sort of interject the biggest issue in mechanical ventilation worldwide is terminology. There is mm-hmm. no standardized terminology for mechanical ventilation, and largely that stems from ventilator companies who release their ventilator and they do this fancy new mode of ventilation, which is actually just a mode of ventilation we already have, but with different...
0: Duopap and BiPap, yeah, for so example. Yeah, th- so
1: it's the yeah. biggest issue in ventilation is figuring out which mode we're in based on what all the letters are. SIMV is, you know how we said we had, let's in assist control, um, which is some, sometimes called CMV, continuous mandatory ventilation. This is where breath types become really useful. There's three types of breath that you can get on mechanical ventilator. The first is a controlled breath, a mandatory breath. So that is something which really has nothing to do with the patient. The ventilator is going to deliver that breath, whatever happens. Okay, Mm -hmm. And and those are usually either a set tidal volume or a set pressure change. So that's a a volume control or a pressure control. So that's breath type 1 is a controlled breath. Breath type 2 is an assisted breath. And those are exactly the same as the controlled breaths, except they are initiated by the patient. Right. So they're, they're, so they're assisted breaths. And so,
0: but when you say assisted though, all the patient is doing is initiating that breath and then the machine will take over, detect, detects the flow time or whatever. And then, so in terms
1: of workload on the patient's muscles an assisted breath is, it's a little bit misleading. Like they don't really have to do much other than just make a small inspiratory effort. And then the ventilator takes over and gives them a breath. Okay. So control breath, assisted breath. And then the third breath type is spontaneous breath, uh, at least from the terminology that we use. And a spontaneous breath is initiated by the patient like the um, like the control, uh, assisted breath is. But it's, the, the patient has far more control of how long the breath lasts, what the f- inspiratory flow is. If they want to breathe in quicker, they can. If they want to breathe in slower, they can. And all they get is just a little bit of help from the pressure support. So there's three breath types. And in SIMV, uh, you have your respiratory rate of, let's say, we'll keep 10 a minute. Mm-hmm. And let's say we have our, so we're going to be in PSIMV, as you said. So we're going to use pressure control for our mandatory breaths. Uh, so every six seconds, 10 breaths a minute, we're going to have a pressure control. Let's say that's 20. So every six seconds, they get a pressure change of 20, which gives them a breath. In between those breaths, they can take spontaneous breaths, which are just breaths that they just take on their own. They choose the tidal volume. They can breathe in quickly, slowly. They pick the flow they want to breathe in at. And it's just got a little bit of support from the ventilator with the pressure support. So SIMV is kind of a mixed mode because it allows the patient to take those spontaneous breaths. Whereas assist control, they, only, they can only have those first two breath types. They can either have a controlled breath or an assisted breath. So they don't have any sort of the patient doesn't have any say in in the volume or or how much flow they get or anything. So that's one of the sort of one of the reasons we when patients become more awake, we like to switch them to a mode where they can breathe what we call spontaneously. So because when you and I are breathing right now, we, we don't we don't breathe in with a fixed flow rate of 60 liters a minute every breath. Like some of our breaths are slow. Some of our breaths a quick. Sometimes we breathe in quickly. Sometimes you breathe in slowly. There's there's variation there, which you which isn't allowed for in assist control mode. Smack US,
0: Chicago, June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Nixon, Flower, Weingart, May, Rohi, Malimat, Lavater, Reed, Carley, Rogers. The date? June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Smack US. Chicago. Book it now. Hi, Jonathan. My name's Emily. I'm an AE nurse from South Wales. Just wanted to let you know that um, while I was preparing for an interview doing some research, I stumbled across your podcast three. It's the podcast that you interviewed the lead resuscitation officer, Robin Davis. I think it was a really good podcast, gave me a really good insight into his role and obviously did help me prepare for the interview. Um, I think your podcasts are really good. I've had a little look at your website and I think I'm definitely going to check the Twitter one out. Thanks again. Bye. Thanks, Emily. That's a really nice comment. Emily left that comment via my voicemail on my website at www.criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. It's really nice to hear comments like that. Um, It's a lot of work, this podcasting malarkey. Um, I spend a lot of time um, and energy investing in it. And it's just so I get comments like that just makes it uh, all the more worthwhile. Really nice to hear. So thanks, Emily. If you want to leave a voicemail, then by all means do. I'm more than happy to uh, get compliments like that. So thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed the information that Ollie had to impart We are going to break down the mechanical ventilation a little further. I've already recorded another episode with him in which we're going to actually talk about the indications and the goals of mechanical ventilation. So perhaps start from the beginning a little more. But I hope you found that useful. If you have, then let me know and we can work on doing some more. But go to his YouTube channel. It's brilliant. It really, really is brilliant. If you type in Respiratory Review into YouTube and Ollie Pool, you'll find it. And it's a very, very good series. I highly recommend it. So go and have a look. But as I say, we'll be hearing from Ollie again. We're planning on doing a little series of these. The other big news, and you've heard the trailer that I've been playing a few times for this now, is that the agenda, the program for SMAC US is now out. So if you go to the SMAC website, just type in Smack Chicago into Google and that will take you there. The program for SMAC is now out and it looks brilliant. It's a three-day program. They've got lots of really interesting speakers. I so wish I could be there. But I can't, so I'm going to have to try and live it vicariously. And hopefully anyone that's going there, any of you lot out there, perhaps you could tweet your little hearts out for us so that we know what's going on. I have spoken to Ollie Flower, who's one of the organizers of the SMAC conference. And he has agreed to come and chat to me about the program, the SMAC US program. So hopefully I'll be able to release that sometime fairly soon. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is that we are getting together as a group, myself and some others, to speak to one of the authors of the Arise study. I'm actually going to be doing that this evening, um, so we're going to be doing that via Google Hangout, and we'll all be sharing that across various, it's St. Emlin's and Jixcast and um, Intensive Care Network. So you might find that uh, you'll be listening to the same episode, but our attitude is let's get the, the FOMED stuff out to as many people as we can. So I'm looking forward to that as well. I've just had a conversation with Theresa Chin. If you remember, Teresa um, is the lead of at we Nurses, which is um, working out to be a huge body in the Twitter world for nurses, doctors, paramedics. So I've just chatted to her. She was the first ever podcast I did. So she kindly came back and um, we've had another conversation about what's happened to her over the last year. So that was an interesting conversation as well. And hopefully I'll be releasing that sometime soon. I'm thinking about Christmas now as well. I've spoken to a chap called uh, Jesse Spur down in Australia and we're going to do something a little bit different, he and I, hopefully for Christmas, so keep an ear out for that one. Just one last thing to tell you about. We ran the clinical history taking examination course in Walsall back in September. It went very well. There's going to be another one now in Walsall in February, so if you wanted to come along to that one or spread the word for me, I'd be very grateful. That's probably enough of my time and your time. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.